All right, mic check. Mike here. I got nothing. No audio. Mike, sp- speak a little lot louder. Yeah. You have nothing. Right? No audio. What do you mean no audio? Damn it, Robbie. I can't hear anything. <laughs> You're kidding, right? Yeah, yeah, no. Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is January 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. I'm going to skip the lengthy monologue today because we have a full house in studio. Uh, Joining me are Lars Michelson an urban planner whose expertise runs the gamut from transportation finance, corporate real estate, and energy policy, all the way to land use and international relations and uh, uh, Italian food. And we've got Robert Ball here, a very talented young architect and urban designer who has worked on everything from high-rises to waterfront parks to, I guess that's pretty much it, and row houses and uh, single-family attached, attached homes, houses, uh, apartments, uh, commercial, retail, and finally, there in the back, I see you there, is Lisa Murphy, a New York City-based urban planner, highly regarded for her work in affordable housing. She's in studio, working hard in the box, uh, but we'll try to bring her out at least for a segment or two if if Robert is willing to share his mic. But before I bring out Lars and Robert, and if all goes according to plan, Lisa, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Push Pendulum power swing from Perpetual Technology, standing 200 feet tall and requiring only the extra push of one worker at a time to achieve perpetual motion. One push swing can power up to 1,000 homes and operate at full capacity 100% of the time as long as someone is up in the tower to give it a little extra push. The new push pendulum power swing from Perpetual Technologies, solving the climate change crisis with brute force, one push. 1,000 homes at a time. And, of course, our sponsor, Rollin' Cases, the most rockin' suitcases on wheels. Rollin' Cases, whether you're traveling to Duluth to speculate on some long-term real estate near a vast repository of fresh water in preparation for the coming apocalypse, or flying a personal jet to Miami for some wood-fired carne asada, Rollin' Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Rollin' Cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners, old and new, I bring you Lars Michelson. Robert Ball and perhaps Lisa Murphy. All right, Lars, yes. Robert, hey Lisa in the back. Good afternoon. How are you guys all doing today? Uh, everyone, everyone, good. Doing swell. Yeah, happy to be doing here. Doing swell. Um, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourself uh, for uh, our listeners, or, or are you going to pass on that? Let's do... Uh, no, I think that was a pretty thorough introduction, Hank. Thank you. Okay, this, that's Robbie's voice, by the way. He's the, the architect, urban designer. Uh, Mike, you want to announce your present with your voice? Uh, yeah, I am here and in the room, but I think you did a great job covering our introductions already. Okay, that is Mike, the, the urban planner. Um uh, sorry. Let's get right into it. That was Lars, the urban planner. I don't know why I called you Mike. Uh-huh. Uh, Weird. <laughs> uh, Lars, since you were last here, yes. I think in in March, maybe or June. I don't know. It was a while ago. It was almost a year ago. Uh, but you switched jobs, and I asked you uh, last time you were here what uh, the conversation was like around climate change um, in your everyday social life, in your professional life. Um, so. Since you were last here, how has that changed? 
How is uh, is climate change t- discussed at your previous job, at your new job, in your previous social life, in your new social life? You want to take a stab at that one? I mean, when I, when I, previously I was at the MTA in New York and climate change mm-hmm. was super relevant to everything we were doing because we're, you know, spending billions of dollars on trillion dollar infrastructure assets that are all located about six feet or lower above sea level. Mm-hmm. And so there was a huge amount of investment and design and thought that was going into how we make these assets more resilient. Mm-hmm. And I was super involved in all of that on a day-to-day working basis. Mm-hmm. Quick, li- quick pause. The, yeah. the MTV, MTA does the New York City subway system, yes, the buses. Long Island Railroad mm-hmm. and uh, Staten Island Railroad, um, Metro North. Gotcha. Yeah, the whole gamut of transportation options around the New York uh, City area. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how a lot of the, the assets were vulnerable to sea level rise and... Um, how they were still doing uh, repairs after Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, for sure. And then even on a on a different front, looking at temperature, uh, anyone who's ridden on the subway in New York City in summer knows just how hot it is. Oof. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So it's like, have you had, because I know they're at least in Philly and in New York too, they're talking about more cooling stations mm-hmm. and how just like in, you know, crazy hot temperatures in the summer we're going to need more cooling stations so you would do just for our listeners you would do both the improvements to the trains themselves and to the stations correct yes what is a cooling station what is being cooled exactly i'll let the architect answer that that's ooh, i i i'm not too familiar with it i think it's literally just a more climate controlled room to get you out of more so it's it's just getting you out of exposure so like the it doesn't have it's not like a refrigerator like turned into an office building or anything like that it's more they'll have water they'll have um i guess wet towels i'm not really sure what like what a cooling station would be i mean to to answer that question your the human body is 98 and change degrees, right? Mm-hmm. These are not being built 6. by the MTA, though. No, These this are is all private, over the place. No, like no private no, no, establishments no. or no, by the just city. Say there is this past summer, there was a massive heat wave mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. So if the human body needs to be, you know, around ninety-eight degrees to function properly, and the temperature is consistently above a hundred, eventually you're going to heat up. And if you spend enough time above ninety-eight without a ability to cool yourself in any manner back down to 98 degrees you're basically cooking from the inside yeah and so that's why people die is that they're not able to their core temperature just gets too high and there's no opportunity at night for them to cool down because the temperature doesn't drop below you know the body temperature and they just run out of water and they can't sweat to cool and so you just need a location where even if the temperature is just moderately below Mm -hmm. You know, it gives you a chance to regulate your body temperature, rehydrate, and, you know, prepare to go back out into the heat. So you're saying it could be something as simple as just an air-conditioned room. It could be an air-conditioned room with a couple bottles of water. But with with the intention that it's for the public. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah, it's like a library could have a cooling station. Hospitals, of course, will have cooling stations, like YMCAs. There's something that's super easy to set up. You know, just take any public building that has some level either through its own design Mm -hmm. where it's uh, has enough volume to just stay cool, you Mm -hmm. know, or is air conditioned and has running water. So these are quite the tangent. (laughs) They're paid for by the 
the city, the public sector, or are they kind of private retail establishments? No, this, these would be public establishments. It, it would be a public establishment. Okay, yeah. almost like a public space, but indoors and ground I mean, control. You, you see the same thing happen in winter, just on the flip side. We have a warming center. Yeah. Or in the aftermath of a hurricane where you just have locations where people can go and stay on cots. It's sort of the same thing where it's public yeah. infrastructure in a time of need where people can go mm -hmm. it's kind of like how people use penn station now or bus stations mm -hmm. or libraries but i think i think the thing to think about a cooling center is that like especially for a former mta uh employee and someone that you know thinks about long-term planning and like the entire transit network like you will need a cooling center to get from point a to point b like there's like if you're on the bus that doesn't have enough cooling like, and you're trying to, like, move a long distance, like, mm -hmm. you can't make it that entire way without stopping for a break to cool down. I mean, to be fair, all the buses are air-conditioned, and all the trains should be air-conditioned, and that's that's a huge aspect, and when they're not on a train, we call that a hot car, and as quickly as possible, that train is pulled out of service uh, so that the AC unit and that can be repaired, and the newer trains have very modular units where you can basically swap out the entire system with a crane mm -hmm. in a matter of minutes instead of having to uh, go through a lengthy overhaul process, and you can get that train running again. The issue when it comes to is the stations is that you have steam pipes, which are super helpful in the winter for providing heat, uh, but... <laughs> They don't really help you cool down in the station on the summer. And then when you have the AC units on the trains, AC units dump like heat yeah. from one location to another. So they take all of the heat that's in the subway car and just put it into the station in the tunnels. Mm -hmm. So is it the MTA that's funding this? Is it being paid for for MTA money? What department is is this program under what program? for the city? The cooling stations? Oh, yeah, the, the cooling MTA stations. by no means is no. participating is, in cooling stations. Department station. of Health? Uh, typically, it's emergency services, yeah. Department of Health. Okay. Uh, the MTA is not... Okay, um, that's what... This is... He just wanted to talk about this. this uh, like, we're talking about a uh, hospitable station environment. That's something that we're very considerate of. Yeah. The MTA. Uh, you need to make it so people don't sweat to death on a station platform. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, they're not really doing anything about that. I mean, we are. We're trying to... They, at, they're overhauling, you know a very large amount of stations in the next five years mm -hmm. to make them more accessible and easier to use and easier to be in. Mm -hmm. like the new, the new station that opened up at by Hudson yards seems like a very much a, a 21st century station. There's an escalator. It seems like it's climate controlled somewhat down there. Um, it looked more like the subway stations that were in, in Seoul, Korea, where, mm -hmm. where I live, where every subway station, um, not just escalators, but it has uh, clean public bathrooms, um, uh, convenience stores, bakeries. Uh, it's very a shopping mall sort of like uh, cleanliness. Um, almost you know, with every, every five minutes you're walking, you find one of these subway stations that are pretty much like cooling stations in the summer. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking maybe Lisa Murphy can jump on uh, this segment if she wants to. She spends 45 minutes to an hour. In the subway? Uh, in the subway every day. Yeah. Is it hot there? You can just, you don't have to pick up a mic. Is it, is it fun riding the subway? No. No, she said. Well, that's, a, that's a shame. We worked really hard on that subway. <laughs> yeah, Mike. Well, you're, Mike, you're somewhere new, though. Yeah, you know, I so am somewhere new. You're so doing something very different not now. not my problem. I'm doing something very different and also very similar. 
Uh, so currently I have switched to a position that's uh, at a larger financial firm where I do corporate real estate management. And in many ways, it's exactly the same role as what I was doing at the MTA, which was capital planning and budget. So long-term sort of capital outlook where we need to spend our dollars on Mm -hmm. and then also budget management Mm -hmm. and sort of that oversight into how projects are spending dollars Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if they're budgeting and doing their forecasting and, you know, making sure projects are delivered on schedule and on budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's interesting doing it, you know, for a different subject. But in many ways, it's the same, you know, the same skill set and daily activity, just for a different outcome. Mm-hmm. Also, the you, you went from the public to the private for sector. Sure, yes. um, so have you noticed uh, any change in how people feel and dis- feel about and discuss climate change? Yeah, uh, perhaps the biggest thing is the MTA is legacy assets. These are structures that have been in place for 100 years. And with real estate, you have the ability to choose where you are. And a lot of times if we're signing a lease, you don't necessarily need to think about the long-term outlook of a location in the sense that you can always move, you know, in five, 10 years when your lease is up. Uh, So that is a little bit different in like we're very cognizant of climate change and the need to pull our weight and helping to be more sustainable. And we participate in a number of programs to do that, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's different in that we're not, we're not daily preparing for the next hurricane or flood like we were at the MTA Mm -hmm. or I was at the MTA. Right. You have the flexibility to move your offices and we would never, we would never choose to put something in an area that was had unknown vulnerability. You know, the subway lines in New York, there's only so much you can do because someone installed them a hundred years ago underneath lower Manhattan. Okay. Um, and so they're extremely valuable infrastructure and used by hundreds of thousands of people daily mm-hmm. and you can't really move them, but we could choose not to lease in lower Manhattan. Gotcha. You know? Interesting. So you are looking at um, climate change considerations as when you locate a, a, a new um yeah we take office, they yeah. take a holistic approach to locating and that's definitely something they're cognizant of mm-hmm. okay great and robert uh you are now in your since since we last uh, talked i believe you were in your third year of uh now you're, you're on your, your fourth and final year of uh, of graduate year. school at the illustrious university of uh, pennsylvania where where we all met and studied together so what's the the conversation in in academia uh, like around climate change these days, how has it evolved maybe from your first to your fourth year? Well, I think since we, uh, God, I can't even remember. Did we do a, a podcast last fall about the, uh, the resiliency studio? Um, maybe not. Let me just, maybe an abridged one. I feel like you yeah, joined. I'll, 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 I'll refresh the, uh, the audience. Yes, so please. we, um, we end the, uh, architecture program, uh, with two studios, uh, or a studio and a thesis. And uh, last semester, I got the chance to actually travel to Indonesia and Singapore for a studio. We were focusing on um, vulnerable waterfronts um, in industrial areas and industrial transition areas. So it was a comparison between uh, the coastal city of Semarang uh, in central Java and uh, the Newton Creek uh, area of Queens and Brooklyn and how those areas are vulnerable and what you can do uh, with long-term planning and uh, built architectural solutions uh, to sort of intervene um, in the face of rising seas. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, it was a great semester. We ended up, uh, my partner and I uh, understood that a lot of Newton Creek, um, the area that we chose, was so vulnerable to sea level rise. Um, and so sort of miss, I guess, uh, the way to describe it is it, it is designated industrial, but it's not the most intense industrial use. So mm-hmm. we decided to um, propose an idea and a plan where we would uh, reconstitute a lot of the industrial area onto a series of islands that would sit in Newton Creek um, and sort of be uh, a new sort of buffer from um, vulnerable uh, industrial land and like the rising creek, the rising nature of the creek. Mm-hmm. And it's also a means of um, sort of revitalizing the creek, renaturalizing a lot of these um, hardened um, mm-hmm. bulkheads, uh, along this, this industrial pathway and, um, yeah, restructuring transportation logistics, uh, and other industries that would support this, this heavy industry reorganization in the Creek. So in, in, yeah. in summary, it's like, we knew that we couldn't fight climate change. So we pulled back like a lot of the, the uses in that area, mm-hmm. um, and understood that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's just one, like, we couldn't focus the studio entirely on climate change. It mm. had to be about job creation. It had to be about remediation of sure. this polluted Creek. And, you know, thinking about like, you know, after this, after the water rises and falls, like what's going to happen. Yeah. What well, I just to, to be clear, you said you were going to create uh, small islands in the Creek to right. have industrial uses, but also renaturalize the Creek. So what do you mean by that? So by the, creating industrial uses, by, and also renaturalizing at the same time. So right now, it's I think it's like ten miles. It's a ten mile long portion uh, that splits Brooklyn and Queens, mm-hmm. um, and the entire creek is lined with light industrial uses. So our plan uh, was to pull back a lot of those uses from the immediate edge of the creek and renaturalize those portions. So mm, it's it's like it's like the Danish, um, or sorry, the Dutch uh, room for the river strategy. Mm-hmm. Where you don't develop on the river, you let it like grow and flood, you let it uh, contract in mm-hmm. times of drought, but the entire time it's, you know, it, you prevent immediate uses on the creek. Was this a, a passive or a proactive approach? You know, zoning, oftentimes when you, you implement something that way, it's it's passive. You do this right. plan and slowly over years it adapts to what you decision you've made. Or were you actively proposing direct targeted investments in that area to change things immediately? Well, I think we, we did want to change things. Um, there are, we looked at like several industrial uses and several um, like parcels that were like inadequately like served or inadequately like placed along the creek. So like a lot of a lot of that area is like residual industrial land mm-hmm. that doesn't need to be on the creek. So this is something okay. like a furniture store that has a bulkhead and like access to water, which is just totally inappropriate and unnecessary. Maybe they have big furniture that they need to offload by barge. Let me try to clear up some of the the technical uh, jargon here uh, for our, our listeners, our five or six listeners. Um, Got but up to six. <laughs> when, Hi, Mom. when you said a, a passive. Uh, a passive uh, approach versus a proactive approach. Um, a passive approach would be rezoning the industrial properties to preserved, um, like kind of parkland, essentially, right. right? Correct. Yeah, like something that would be almost expensed. Whereas you have a, a planning department and they make plans, and you had them make a plan, and that um, 
Whereas the proactive would be you've actually budgeted to spend money. Like to, a purchase of development rights. Like a, these places. a purchasing the easement. and a, Yeah. So or buying off the Subsidizing a development. Or, I don't, and honestly, I don't mm-hmm. think a passive approach would work in those areas. This is already kind of like the last resort um, for a lot of these like, you know, warehousing, light manufacturing areas to go without actually like leaving the city. They mm-hmm. still need to be close to markets and close to sort of like these these supply hubs really so i don't know if a passive approach like would work in that area with like how constrained like new york city is mm-hmm. hmm. okay very very interesting i do want to uh kind of hang go back to jakarta in a second yeah. because i know we all have a, a sort of mutual interest in that um lars you you actually sent us a couple couple articles uh before you came on the podcast uh Couple on street cleaning in Philadelphia, very very local uh, problem. Um, I have my skepticism that this will be a um, a, a enthralling topic f- uh, for our listeners. Street cleaning in Philadelphia, but I st- I'm Burn. still very open minded and uh, and a very uh, um, enthusiastic myself about your uh, your explanation of, of why it's we should all be ex- so excited about it, um, and also about um, Jakarta the capital of Indonesia, which Robert Ball, you, you visited this past uh, fall. I did. And how they are moving that the capital of Jakarta. They're moving their um, their national headquarters mm-hmm. to Borneo, an island a, a thousand kilometers away. Um, so I don't you, think so I, I think that... I think it's close than that. Why don't we start with the street cleaning, Mike, and then we'll, uh, at Lars, and then we'll we'll kind of move back to Jakarta, okay, and sort of get this segment out of the way. So, all right, convince me. He's going to get in trouble. What's so, what's so important about street cleaning in Philadelphia? Well, I, I don't think it's an argument of why street cleaning in Philadelphia is important. It's just, in general, the larger argument is street cleaning is important. Mm-hmm. Mike, and, what's different about, Phil- sorry, what's different about Philadelphia than like a traditional city in the way it cleans it the streets? It doesn't in residential areas. So that that is the big difference. And Philadelphia is one of the few major cities in the United States that does not do residential street cleaning. Uh, and like, by street cleaning, do you mean sidewalks or the street or both? Or what yeah. are we talking about? Um, if you think... Uh, You've been out and you've seen a street uh, sweeper machine before. Basically, they don't do that in residential areas. Hmm. Yeah. Which is seems problematic because every Monday or, or Tuesday when we have Monday off, we take our garbage out onto the sidewalk and it gets usually it blown over yeah. in the wind. It's rain. It does not st- stand up. It does up. not stay there. Um, no, the garbage flies all over the street. Mm-hmm. So haven't um, noticed it. So is Philly, when did they, Philadelphia stop cleaning the streets and why did early, they do that? Early 2000s, late 1990s, budget mm-hmm. issues uh, sort of made it a last resort uh, to remove uh, residential street cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said before, Philadelphia is, you know, Boston still does residential street cleaning. Chicago York, does it. You know, re- Chicago, Washington, D.C. And oh, yeah, D.C. does do it. And uh, they've tried in the past to bring it back here, but in sort of the most recent mm. iteration of it, people didn't want to move their cars, mm. and so they weren't able to bring it back. But you had asked originally what makes street cleaning important, like why is it important, like the argument for it, and that you know it, it's a sanitation problem. There's a lot of things that end up on the streets that are really, really, really gross. It's mm-hmm. also, can I add, it's also a stormwater problem. Also a stormwater problem is mm. if you leave something on the streets and it rains, whatever is there 
ends up in your yeah in, in the your, water your sewage yeah. treatment plant or in the river if there's an overflow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even for people who live along these streets, uh, you have dust that's accumulating on them. You can have lead paint chips that's building up, and every time a car goes by it, it blows it up into the air for you to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to have these streets cleaned. Right. You know, it's it's honestly it's a health problem so to like, not do it. We talked about this problem uh, earlier this weekend, and you said that partly it was the cause of Philadelphians not wanting to move their cars. Yeah, when so they tried to bring it in the back, budget. Okay. Uh, so the original uh, reason it was removed was due to budget mm-hmm. budget concerns. And they have tried in the past to bring it back, but there's been resistance uh, for people wanting to move their cars, whether it be once a week, once a month, mm-hmm. uh, to allow the mechanical street sleeper to come through. It's mm-hmm. like and taxes. When you <clears throat> cut taxes, it's always harder to raise them back up again. For sure. And so the Kenny administration right now, he ran on sort of one of his one of his uh, promises was to bring back residential street cleaning. I'm going to clean up the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so this past over the past year, they ran an initial pilot program that uh, attempted to clean the streets without having people move their cars. And so basically, if you think of parking on either side of the street, you have one way. It's like having your cake and eating it, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And they'd have the machine run down the big sucker machine, run down the middle of the street and then have people with leaf blowers on either side blowing the gunk out off the sidewalks and out from underneath the cars into the middle of the street to be swept up. But you can only imagine how effective that is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, a good street sweeping machine is going to use some sort of liquid to really get down and, you know, prevent dust from blowing all around. But you're using a leaf blower. What are you doing? You're just blowing the dust all the way around. Right, right. So uh, from a health and safety standpoint, not really good for the workers, even if they're wearing a mask and not really good for the residents. Obviously, better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Probably gets the cars dirty too, right? Oh yeah, yeah. How often does each street get cleaned? I, I honestly don't know. Like once a week, once a month. No, not once a week. It's not once a week. Yeah. I would say once a month. I think you'll or see if you frequently. if you go visit another city, you'll see like signs. It's like move cars every like you know third Tuesday, like third Tuesday yeah. of the month or something they, like that. They just post the sign up on the street <laughs> yeah. permanently. Yeah. Where do the cars move to? away well the thing is like i think they stagger it yeah Mm. Yeah. lisa thinks it's the other side of the street i i honestly don't know i don't own a car yeah i just think it's important that residential streets be clean yeah i'm wondering like if they change the street direction of one-way streets on those days interesting huh i retract my point that's kind of cool Huh. Okay. But so the commentary, if 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 she's not catching the mic, um, they f- will flip the direction of the streets and the car parking and the car parking. If that makes sense. So if you have one lane of traffic and one lane of cars both facing the same direction, right? You mm-hmm. flip the parking lane to the other side and you change directions. directions. Now, what happens if you have two two lanes of parking though? Like parking on each side. But then it's not as big of an issue if they just close one side. Yeah, you just have to close one side of the street. Yeah, I'm not sure I understand. So our street that we live on <laughs> is a, a map? It, it's a one-way street that's yeah. that's Paper. one lane with street parking on both sides, all facing the same way. Yeah. Right. So what happens when they clean the street? 
Presumably one lane of parking would have to move or both at the same time. Okay. And when one lane of parking moves, now all of a sudden the one way turns around, it goes the other way? No, I I, I don't think in that situation it doesn't turn around. It would just be one lane of parking is removed. Like you can't park on the right side of the street on like Thursday of, you know, the third Thursday of the month. And then it's like the, you know, second Friday of the month, the left side, something like that. Hmm. But yeah. Interesting. So do you think that this pilot program will expand to uh, from leaf blowers to actually requiring people to move their cars again? It will. It is. So oh, this it's next year, to. yeah, and limited neighborhoods are going to be trialing it with people moving cars again with hopefully in wow. the early, um, before, you know, 2024, 2023, actually getting up to a full citywide residential hmm. street cleaning program. Yeah, I'm, I'm for it. I, I think that that was, that was an interesting point about um, how the stormwater runoff, how it goes into mm-hmm. into the water. Well, I think another supply. thing it does is that mm-hmm. if you have enough trash on the street from like an event or something, it'll actually clog the like the stormwater like catchment pipes. So that's how you start flooding the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a huge concern with like, you know, picking up leaves in the fall mm-hmm. so that it doesn't flood the street. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. I guess one one final Philly question I have for yeah. you guys. What's what's going on? And this is like a very common like welcome to Philadelphia. This is a weird like thing. Like what's going on with the parking on like South Broad where it's like in the middle of the street and it goes both ways. It's like one lane of parking in like the very, very middle. And it's mm-hmm. like it, it like goes like each way. We were like down on Passyunk yeah. uh, like a couple times this weekend and we we're like, what the fuck is that i feel like i I heard an explanation for this does it have to do with removal of street trees or creating i mean it's definitely people love parking so they removed all the trees to add parking i don't know if they did that but i know that there was something in south philly (laughs) if you if you look at philadelphia you'll see that there's very few trees in south philly oh yeah because they thought that the trees like attract rats (laughs) and different kinds of like pests um i love this city i'll tell you what trees don't prevent mice Oh yeah! <laughs> Set up a couple traps uh, yesterday afternoon. We should start growing some trees in here. <laughs> no, I'm saying the trees uh, bring the mice. The trees bring the mice. Oh wait, that proves my point. We have trees in West Philly, and we have mice. Okay. Anyway, I don't know. Anecdotal. I don't know if there's yeah, a connection. yeah. Let's like, ignore the holes in the wall. It's probably the trees. <laughs> okay. I don't know the. Do you know the answer to this? To the to the cars on Broad Street. Yeah. No. I've not, yeah, I, I'm I'm curious. Did you know they used to? This is uh, another digression. But did you know that they had a pilot program that they closed off Chestnut Street for cars? I heard about for a that. while. Yeah. What, what happened with that? I mean, what 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 was the goal of that at the time? Was it just to have a free street? Yeah, the goal was on? to alleviate traffic and have a pedestrian street, and they ran uh, bus service you down know, that, it. That makes sense because they do still have that like one like one lane of bus. Yeah. going down chestnut and it's like a it's like a shared bike bus lane and i used to live in center city and i really appreciated like having that like free lane mm-hmm. yeah they did that and all the businesses they can they complained but you know what that's also where they had that big um that big pothole <laughs> you mean the sinkhole or the sinkhole sorry oh, really? outside yeah, the bruno yeah, yeah. brothers outside of the bruno brothers and yeah well maybe that's why they and like, it caught itself a city bus yeah <laughs> yeah what yeah. a town um I had an idea, I think, while we're on the subject of Philadelphia. True. Um, so, you know, we discussed uh, previously a, a lot of IKEA architecture, which are these <laughs> right. very cheap, 
um, apartments about three stories high that usually uh, intended for students or students. They take about a third of the block. Right. Um, and they they look super very cheap. Um, but they they create more housing. They usually right. replace vacant lots. There there was a good amount of vacant lots in in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, it you know adds adds value to neighborhoods, but on the other hand, it's just it's it's it adds the, the lowest value mm-hmm. possible in a sense. But it's the cheapest modular like like crappy plastic and aluminum paneling on the sides. Yeah, just none of the materials are high quality. How and, long do you think they'll last? Um, you know, we have brick townhomes that have been here for hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, you're sitting in one. Yeah. I think I, I, I can't, I can't really like say with authority, like how long, like those buildings will last. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, that's something I always wonder. We've made such a huge pivot in materials, especially yeah. for outsiding, like vinyl siding. And right. I don't think anyone really knows what the useful life of this stuff is yet. Yeah. Because it just mm-hmm. hasn't been out there on the market that long. Mm-hmm. It seems like as materials get more advanced and cheaper to buy, that doesn't hasn't translated into um, better buildings, really. The buildings look cheaper. Even though the materials are, they would have been more expensive fifty years ago. But an old brick building like looks well. Something something interesting we talk about in in architecture school is how we're kind of at this weird point right now where we've like we are getting sick in our buildings because our materials are too good. Like there is not um, passive airflow. There's not good circulation because we've built these homes that are like sealed tight. You know, and if you don't have proper ventilation and airflow, like you'll you'll start to you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, become become ill in these places. So the old drafty buildings, the brick buildings, like you didn't really need to worry about you know, like the amount of you know uh, recycled air that you're breathing. Mm-hmm. Especially if the air is coming up from the street from a leaf blower, exactly, or from a passing car on a street that hasn't been blown by a leaf blower in quite some time um but the 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 row house ikea architecture um i saw one at broad and gerard the other day yeah that so broad and gerard would be close to like a lot of universities so i think it's like sort of near temple yeah ikea architecture is synonymous with student housing student housing a, a a big one but I liked it, and I'll tell you why I liked it. Oh, is this the, the porches? Porches and balconies, baby. <laughs> so West Philadelphia that's that's, is, that's, that's is no known as Porch Fest, porches, balconies. It's everything about it was IKEA architecture, but just adding the porches and the balconies, I feel like integrates it with the the community in, in such a better way. Kind of um, instead of being sort of so, so, yeah. so closed off and inward no, I facing. Would, I would agree. It's that's outward a, facing. It's a step above IKEA architecture. Yeah. But as soon as soon as you start adding those kind of elements, that adds to the cost of it because you're you have extra like drawings that you need to make. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like you know, it can't just be like a straight extrusion box. You actually need to detail like how the openings come together. And like, if your porch is going to start leaking on the porch below you, like yeah. it is a little bit more involved. Um, yeah. And you know, well, my question to you it. is that, is that um, based on demand and market forces, the building of porches or the not building of porches, or well, is it based on ooh, actually, um, building code policies and zoning so, policies? Because let me just to elaborate on this, on this question. A, um, a lot of porches 
exist in West Philly? Is that because that was that was what it took at the time to attract tenants? Um, that there was demand for porches and balconies, and that kind of demand has stopped? Or is it that it was written in the code in some way? So I wrote uh, a paper last semester for a planning law class about civic design review, um, which is the process they have to go through if your building has over 100 units or 100,000 square feet of new construction. So is this building over 100,000 square feet or 100 units, do you think? Um, It's probably might be 100 units at most, yeah. So... I think that the quality of the building might come from like responses from the like civic design review committee and mm-hmm. they'll say like, Hey, like, you know, this is just a flat wall. You need to break up this massing a little bit, maybe add some porches, add some nice architectural elements, add some balconies. Interesting. So like, if you get to a certain size in Philadelphia, you have to go before this committee and they'll make recommendations. And sometimes, you know, the developers and the architects will actually follow the recommendations and, you know, incorporate it. Civic design review. Yeah. Like they'll, they'll, they'll incorporate all these recommendations. Uh, but the paper was about how this is all advisory. Like they can just go through two rounds of review. They get knocked down the first time and they just pass through the second time. And it adds like time and money to yeah. the developer, but it is by no means, um, uh, like statutory or, uh, enforceable. Uh-huh. Like these these recommendations. So I think on the North Broad and Girard case, you know, it was a developer that wanted to work with the community and probably accepted those changes. Mm-hmm. Or it's just a forward-thinking IKEA developer that was like, you know, what kids like balconies, they like porches. Mm-hmm. We see this in West Philadelphia. We see this, mm-hmm. you know, in parts of like South Philly. Let's try to incorporate it into our building. Gotcha. One more question on this, sure. and then I want to get back to, to climate change directly. Um, but why wouldn't a, a developer or an architect just without civic design review, just kind of like understand that balconies and porches is something that people would want, even right. at the cost of, of square feet in the, in the apartment? You know, like I would I would I'm going to be looking for a new apartment at the end of this lease and I would I love a balcony mm-hmm. and I'd be willing to sacrifice. I don't know how many square feet is a balcony. Roughly. Right. 100 square feet sure yeah i'll be willing to sacrifice 100 square feet of my room for a 100 square foot balcony i would pay more to put 100 square feet of a balcony so why why don't why doesn't every building have balconies be built yeah yeah (laughs) it's cost i mean it comes down to it's a cost to build a balcony it's more expensive to build a balcony. no like i said because you're not because you have to build it's like a it's like almost like detailing like another room it's also one less wall <laughs> I don't think that's how actually you're right. It's one more. You know, it's the same amount of walls because you just push it back. And really, I guess it's two more walls because it's another room. Anyway, um, I want to move on to Jakarta. Jakarta, because we no talked balcon- about no ba- it. actually lots of balconies in Jakarta. We, we talked about it um, briefly, uh, but I want to Jakarta, the capital. We're, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to talk about Jakarta because I feel like we have a long conversation Absolutely. about uh, moving the capital of Indonesia a thousand kilometers away, mm-hmm. and uh, and and what this means if this is the start of a, a larger trend. Um, so, be with you shortly after the break. Welcome back to Climate Change Therapy. I'm here with Lars Michelson, Robert Ball. Um, before the break, uh, we were saying that Jakarta, Jakarta. Uh, 
the capital of Indonesia. Indonesia is the world's fourth most populous country, um, almost as populous as the United States. Mm -hmm. Jakarta is its largest city, 10 million people, one of the largest in the world. Um, but sinking now uh, almost below sea level because of the uh, is the, the water, uh, the wells underneath and the rising seas. Um, so they're going to move their capital to the island of Borneo, a thousand kilometers away. Um, and this is a plan that, uh, Lars, you said uh, it's three years they're going to start construction? Or have they started construction? What's going on? I mean, it, regardless of where they are, it's such a big move that I am so interested in the logistics and why they want to make this. You know, I, mm-hmm. they've been talking about doing this for, I think, the past decade. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're doing it which is crazy right so i just a couple couple stats to really drive this point home how crazy uh this plan is and how you know dire jakarta is or how dire the straits are for jakarta uh jakarta is sinking by an average of one to 15 centimeters a year and almost half the city now sits below sea level that's crazy crazy and so mike what were you well, I've also I've also seen to go with Very the large. statistics there. Continue uh, that uh, traffic in Jakarta costs their economy six point eight billion dollars right. annually, U.S. dollars. And so uh, you had asked what sort of the timeline is for this. I think that it's certainly not a one year thing. Like the population there is huge, and I don't think that yeah. the entire population will move. But There's, the goal no, is... no, no. So the, if they're only moving, sorry, the, uh, yeah, they're the only moving buildings. like the government. They're only yeah. and not even the building. They're they're building like new buildings for. Mm-hmm. The executive branch and the legislature, and I think the right. I think the judiciary sits there too. It's like Philadelphia is basically Jakarta, right? Philadelphia used to be the capital of the United States. Exactly, the it's, U.S. It's like moved that. their capital to D.C. And Philadelphia um, is still not sunk. Philadelphia is is, is still going strong, uh, but dirty streets. When though. they move the whole the, the federal headquarters of a of a nation that has over two hundred fifty million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can yes. bet that a, a mega city will will boom, uh, much like Jakarta has has boomed over the last you know fifty for years. sure. And they're they're planning to spend thirty three billion dollars to relocate their capital, which is pretty crazy. And I I think what interests me is that they're building is that a lot thirty three billion dollars. I have no idea what thirty three billion dollars is a lot. Uh, it I seems mean, like it's not that much to move a capital. <laughs> The last like big but, B I saw, uh, the new and this is kind of a tangent, the new Raider Stadium in Vegas, yeah, cost two billion dollars. Okay, and I that's think, just one building, though. right? And Hudson Yards was like six billion dollars, correct? Okay. Lisa, I think it was like three, anywhere from like three to six billion dollars for Hudson Yards. Yeah, and it's not completely done yet. So we were talking about this on on Saturday because. Um, the, so the federal budget for 2020 is 4.7 trillion dollars, mm-hmm. um, and that the bill for um, the, the 60% of that 4.7 trillion dollars goes to Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare, and then the rest goes to, uh, uh, of the 40% half of that goes to the military, um, and then you have about 700 billion dollars of discretionary funding, including emergency funds. But they're saying like this bill for the Green New Deal and public housing to decarbonize a, a million public housing units would cost 
$180 billion mm-hmm. over, over 10 years, so $18 billion a year. So that's the only reason I said $33 billion doesn't seem like that much because our, our kind of like our conclusion on Saturday was that $18 billion of year wasn't that much in the grand scheme of things. What is, uh, what's the Indonesian currency? Uh, it's called the Rupaya. Okay. Well, it's going to take 466 trillion of those. To well, yeah, it. it's also like, I think it's like 9,000 Rupaya is $1 or something like that. I, I mean, mm. either way, I think the, the state is planning on funding a very small portion of that. You know, they're looking to just construct the government offices, right. perhaps right. homes for the initial civil servants yeah, and expecting point. the rest to come from private investment mm-hmm. that comes along with, I want to be close to a capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, and a lot of it's like hard to say... It's like it is, it, it, of course, climate change is uh, absolutely a huge role to play. Um, the capital is sinking. But I think it's like it's not just like the capital sinking. It's like the carry on effects of like losing so much land to the sea and like the efforts to fight that back and like the congestion that it's causing uh, is like mm-hmm. one of the probably bigger drivers of, you know, why they're moving the capital than like. You know, it's not like the parliament building or like the the president's house is actually sinking mm-hmm. into the sea. Those are you know protected areas that are you know mostly upland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot of it is the traffic, and it's just how many people have come to Jakarta, right. and the fact that you know it's probably not a great idea for the government to concentrate so much um, activity in one place. And this is something we were talking about yesterday. Um, actually, like that you know. There are some federal agencies that have done a good job, like, you know, sort of spreading the wealth, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not just a, you know, capital city versus the rest of the country. Well, Jakarta, when you talk about traffic, uh, does it have a subway system? Uh, it does now. The subway system is very, very new. It only has one line that moves north-south. Mm-hmm. One line for 10 million people. Exactly. And it's just a like a single linear line that covers most of places that probably don't i mean so jakarta uh, for the listeners and i hope this is not too um inaccurate jakarta's a lot like <laughs> los angeles okay where like it's la does out. yeah and it's la doesn't have like like one downtown it's more just like a collection of cities mm-hmm. and like you know small like driving like scale like places that's like a lot. Uh, Jakarta's a lot like that, mm-hmm. where it's just like there's there's not like oh I know I'm in downtown Jakarta right now. It's just kind of this rolling sort of like like very dense, but not very like 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 you know up like th- there are skyscrapers of course that are in pockets of Jakarta, but like there's not a gradient of density. Mm-hmm. Like these places just like pop up out of nowhere. I mean, there's like you know, super mega blocks uh, of like, you know, thousands and thousands of parking spaces with like towers sitting on massive podiums. And then surrounding that are slums, are Mm. informal housing. And for the the majority, I think if someone showed you like a picture of like how dense Jakarta is and, you know, you compared that to New York, you would think that New York is obviously a more dense place, but it's not. Jakarta's uh, much more dense than the New York, even though these are people living in like maybe two story Mm-hmm. Uh, flats that they're building themselves so it seems like there is a a lot there to govern and now the government by moving away from jakarta mm-hmm. there's a lot more at stake here than the fact that government buildings may or may not be underwater but also a symbolically just the the idea of a government abandoning its largest city right um 
how would the res how do the so you were in Jakarta did you get any sense of how people from Jakarta kind of felt about the government people, leaving the city people have a very kind of like it there's not a lot of like i mean it's 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 a it's a country that is not used to trusting the government so everybody thinks that like this is a sort of like oh of course they would move there's probably some like you know it's like oh i'll move the capital and the contract for the construction will go to like my son or my you know brother-in-law's like you know construction business so I, I don't think people are like like if you're implying that people are going to like lose like like faith in the government or like you know they'll mm. they'll see it as like a patriotic blow. I don't yeah. think I don't think they'll they'll experience that. So I think there's not really people, a sense of abandonment. No, I I think I think most people would like rather have the government out of their out of their town. Mm. Um you know, sure. I know it does drive a lot of economic activity, but it's also mm-hmm. like it is, you know, it, a lot of it is removed from like people's lives. Okay. And from the government's perspective now, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say it's easier to govern a place that you are in? Uh, I mean, it's the, it's the government of Indonesia, not the government of Jakarta. So it's yeah, like, I, it's but like, Indone- but Jakarta is kind of the engine of Indonesia. I, yes. Yes. And I think that's, that's, that's part of it too. Right. It's like, you know, like I was saying, like, you know, the U S you know, tried to you know move the capital to or i mean they did move the capital to washington because they didn't want like a concentration of power you know by you know by the most populous part of the country so that's i think that's what a lot of jakarta is trying to do Mm -hmm. is you know really instill like you know indonesian nationalism Mm -hmm. and not like you know jakarta versus everyone else okay well the the capital of uh, the uk is london the Mm -hmm. capital of france is paris the capital of italy Right, but I mean, Rome. look at the capital of Brazil is Brasilia, um, and that was only founded in what the nineteen seventies, yeah, the nineteen no, sixties. It was like the fifties, like fifties and sixties. Yeah. You know, that's uh, these are very concerted efforts to say, you know, let's let's embrace our like federalism, right? Um, you know, and, and you know, try to distribute power as much as we can. But I guess my question is, if you have federalism, mm-hmm. why? Why do you even need to worry about where the location of the federal government is? Because you have these local government right. offices in every city anyway. I mean, for you know, for the you know, for the United States, it was like a it, it was it was a like a like a like a treaty offering. Like it's like we will locate the capital, you know, on the border between Maryland and Virginia, so that the southern states don't feel like they've been you know kind of like rolled over in this process Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's 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 literally like these like symbolic gestures like moving capitals closer like for brazil they moved the capital of brasilia because it was more central to all of brazil it's not like the coastal like you know most of the population of brazil would like at that time lived on the coast um and this was a move to move it to like the center of the country and really Mm -hmm. establish that this giant landmass, you know is governed by this 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 you know place that's at the center of everything you're talking about brasilia brasilia yeah Yeah. brasilia was is also was planned by like corbusier Mm -hmm. and is has like was very i mean it was very criticized as a as a city by a professor in dv (laughs) uh for sure it was like um but i mean i think at um and it also by by also in brazil by moving to kind of the center that also uh, sort of made it more possible 
to increase settlements further to the center and contribute to exactly. deforestation of the Amazon right, for right. cattle ranches. And that's part of like the Brazilian like reclaiming like the you know like the wild um, sort of like center of the country. Mm-hmm. Do you think the move uh, of Jakarta or the move of the capital from Jakarta to to Borneo uh, is a good one? Um, yes. Yes. Mike, says, yes. Mike, say more. Uh, I Well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, right now, uh, Java, which is the island that Jakarta is located on, uh, has 60% of the country's population, which is the majority. Uh, but it, uh, it accounts for the vast majority of the economic output, mm-hmm. whereas the location they're moving it to only accounts for less than 10th of the GDP. Because mm-hmm. a lot of that is preserved rainforest. True, right? true. But, I mean, you're talking about a country of islands, and so yeah. I think that there is a disparity in wealth. And, archipelago. Yeah. Yeah, that's the word. And um, I think that you're. I don't think that Jakarta is gonna disappear immediately. Even though there are no, no, projections no, no, no. that say no. that ninety five percent of the city will be underwater well, in the future. <laughs> I think the. I think read into that. The city will be under the sea under sea level. I don't think the city is gonna be underwater. I think it'll be. I mean, we've toured places um in jakarta where they have like i mean you see it there's like settlements that are next to sea walls and the sea is literally higher than these settlements Mm -hmm. and it's crazy they're like Mm. oh my god aren't they gonna move it's like well where would they move who Mm. would assist them they're fishermen they actually need to be as close to the water as they can get yeah and it's not just sea level rise, but it's monsoons that have already happened and are happening. Right, now. right. Yeah. It's sea level rise. It's, it's, it's storms, freak weather events. There, or there's oh, a and lot subsidence of, too. Yeah, so natural. it's it's this you know this confluence of rising seas and the ground actually sinking. Mm-hmm. And it's because um, in this was a problem in Semarang, our our studio location, uh, and Jakarta, where um, you know a lot of these um, developing countries don't have potable water. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sort of a centralized system. So like industry, both industrial uses like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Gatorade, like they will, and they, you know, the way the the ground rights work is that you can take all the water that's beneath you. So you just have, you just have like groundwater rights to anything Mm -hmm. below you. Um, And it's just the system that's been placed because, you know, the government says, hey, we can't ensure clean water because we're we don't have the you know the money or the know-how to you know mm. really implement a system like that so if you relocate here pepsi or coca-cola you can have all the groundwater you want so mm. they will actually extract the groundwater uh which is leading to subsidence right, wells and pumps exactly and, yeah. so they're taking the water out um seawater is like fil- like flushing into you know groundwater aquifers and the whole you know the whole you know mm-hmm. And the city keeps growing. The city's cool. the city's growing and it's sinking. It's just a heavier landmass on like less yeah. like stable earth with more and more demand for water. Not even from exactly. Coca Cola and, right. and Pepsi, but from people moving in and building. Right, exactly. And dropping presumably a well because there's just so much construction that they can't even get municipal water supply in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of good reasons to move the capital. You know, there's congestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but, that, it, but look at it. Pollution. Good for who? Is it good for like the people that are already living in Jakarta? Or is it good for like the government officials that probably don't even need any help to begin with? That's a that's a fair point, but 
I, I, to me, I, I'm looking at as a country as a whole, like right. preserving a capital con- continuity and redistributing sort of the wealth and GDP and I think that government be expenditures that'll to be areas that perhaps need it more. But you are a valid point being is this city is struggling with its fresh water. It's struggling with its municipal infrastructure and the re- response should not be to just abandon it because it's it's too much and we'll just start over and it will be fine. Right. But I do think that there's a long-term approach that they're looking at where they say, you know, no matter what we do, the ocean's coming up, we're going down and we can either plan for this now or be forced to do something really, really drastic in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think the government expects people of Jakarta, the 10 million living there, to eventually follow them to Borneo? No, definitely not. No? No. So if they don't expect the people to follow them there, full stop. What is the point what is the point of moving? Because the you the people that they have to govern are in Jakarta. Well, see, I would say that the I would argue that that the move makes sense if it's a way to lead by example and say, look, we can no longer live here. It's not safe. Well, it's like what are they supposed to do? These people are, you know, making like a dollar a day. They can't like, you know, fly to borneo and restart their lives like it's it's only it's only something that like you can do with like privilege and authority to like get up and move i at the same time i think that you are acknowledging that the city faces a lot of crises that you Mm -hmm. can't really control and at the very least they'll have established a new city that in the future, if they need to actually relocate people due to climate change, that they have a potential place where they can move them to. And they have right. the opportunity to plan for it in sort of a master plan community. Mm-hmm. And so that's the climate change side of it, but also the congestion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, by removing yeah. a portion so think, of the workforce, uh, yeah. they're helping with congestion. You see uh, Egypt's doing the same thing. Right. right. You know, they have their new administrative capital. That's, you know, 40, 50 kilometers outside of Cairo that they're building for 7 million people. Hmm. So one of the most interesting parts of this this studio that we all took um, last semester, uh, I took last semester, was the sort of like the realization, um, like how, and this is going to like, like this, this might suck all the air out of the room. It's very much just like, you ready? Mm -hmm. Well, it's basically, it's like, it's like flooding is not an issue for these people. Like they're used to floods there's this term called a rob which is this this annual just like it's literally just tidal floods and their homes flood like you know during a certain during the rainy months like every single day and it's for weeks at a time and people are just used to it they've adapted in their architecture which is really interesting they've actually like they'll have um like their couch so they'll they'll move all their electronics to the second floor of their homes Mm-hmm. These are homes that are made out of concrete and they can flood no matter what. It doesn't matter. Um, and they'll actually have their couches and all their furniture that they don't want to get wet connected to 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 like like joists or sorry, like the hoist system. And they will literally hoist up the TV and the sofa like if the water comes to the second floor and it you know goes another like two feet or so. Like it's mm-hmm. incredible. These people like have been living with this. They're they're ready to adapt. It's not like if we like if our house floods like fuck that sucks like oh my god like all my shit's ruined you they, live on the second floor though yeah that'd yeah be, it's like yeah and you know the, with our garbage situation i wouldn't mind a flood on the first floor just saying mm-hmm. but i think like it's 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 you know they will live through the flooding like the streets are they they're mm-hmm. used to flooding 
if it goes another couple centimeters every year, that's fine, you know, so long as they have um, jobs and employment. And I think that's where, you know, like you'll actually get people to, you know, to like do something. Say if like if climate change results in like the, you know, for fishermen, like the main source of income, like is disrupted, then that'll like spring people to action. But not like the the traditional like flooding. It's like there won't be like a disaster scenario where everyone has to move all at once, mm-hmm. like in in Indonesia. As far as you know, uh, you know, I can imagine. Hmm. Okay, um, a couple facts that I'm going to read about Indonesia and Jakarta. First of all, you know what the uh, the world's most tagged city is on Instagram? Is it Jakarta? It's Jakarta. Really? Jakarta is the number one tagged city. I think I, in I Instagram. Did you did you tag Jakarta it. when I'm half going, of them were Ronnie's? I'm going through my Instagram now. Actually, it's the number one. Yeah. Which kind of makes I mean makes sense. You know, ten million people, a lot of visitors. You know, a lot of um. How many did Indonesian you, uh, tourists tag Robert Bell? I'm going through. I actually I lost my Ball. phone in Semarang. If you're if you're listening to this podcast from Semarang and you found an iPhone seven in a cab, please contact BlockRadius.net. <laughs> I would like my phone back. Uh, BlockRadiusNet at gmail.com. BlockRadiusNet at gmail.com. Um, no compensation will be provided. Continuing with the Indonesia first class Jakarta shipping. Um, so Indonesia is made up of eighteen thousand three hundred seven islands. I visited two of them. Actually, no, just one. Just one of those islands. Five of those islands have Komodo dragons on them. The world's last dinosaur. Oh, I did see dragons. There are 139 volcanoes in Jakarta. In Jakarta or Indonesia? Oh, sorry, in Indonesia. <laughs> that's a lot that's for a, one That's city. a real disaster. People can't um, live with volcanoes. Well, it's the world's shortest country in terms of average height um, at 1.58 meters. Mm. What do you think is the world's tallest height, average height? Uh, either Finland or Norway. Close geographically. Is I'll give Sweden? you a hint. It's a country that is that is very... Uh, you mean Denmark? It, it's a country that's very intricately tied to Jakarta itself. And it's the Dutch. Oh, it's the Netherlands. It's the Dutch. It's the Netherlands. The Netherlands. At 1.83 meters, which is these are two, uh, two countries below sea level. And one is the shortest in the world. One's the tallest in the world. Um, just because one has those volcanic mountains and one doesn't. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Colonialism. <laughs> Indonesia has the most species of mammals in the world. Uh, it's 500 or 600 species, depending on who you ask. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty big spread. <laughs> well, there's, there's about 5,000, 6,000 different species of mammals in the world. Uh, so they and Indonesia has five hundred. Like there's of them. like way more bugs like than there 20%. are mammals, right? And half of those species, about two hundred species of just mammals, are endemic, 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 endemic to Indonesia itself. Um, there are two hundred primate species in the world, forty of which can be found in Indonesia, including the orangutan. Um, so just a few facts. Some monkey facts to wet your palate. Um, did you guys hear the, the great Garuda, which was Jakarta's original plant before it decided to move their capital? They were going to take, they were going to build a, a, 
um, reclaimed land and they were going to build something that looked like a, oh, like a yeah. bird I, I, from yeah. above. And it, it was like, it's, it's essentially like... a seawall paid for by development that's mm-hmm. luxury towers. And it was going to create this kind of bay. And it, it looked like something out of Dubai. Yep. Yep. yep yeah. Yep. That got vetoed uh so there is in still... part because of in- environmentally the bay that it would create would kind of like block the water flow and create all these like sewage mm-hmm. problems yeah there's still a lot of like luxury development on the waterfront which too which is really surprising like it is not stopped developers from going to the coast places they know are sinking and building like dubai-esque towers it's a crazy it's a crazy place i mm-hmm. it's yeah indonesia's definitely worth a visit um don't spend much time in jakarta though that's my recommendation sorry there's it's another problem about building luxury towers on the waterfront areas in general not in not just indonesia Mm -hmm. but um united states miami um because when you build luxury towers they're condos you sell out the condos to people so you get the return on the investment as developer immediately and then all these condos are are owned by by people um so I, I, there's kind of this this weird incentive to to build on the waterfront until people stop buying. People love condos. living on the water. Yeah, if you could just rent those out, it would be very different because the landlord would still own them. You know, it's 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 way riskier to build rental units on the waterfront um, because you got you're yeah. Yeah, no, because if you build gonna, if to, you I'll build con- if you build condos, someone buys them and they have the accountability for them. Absolutely. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, yeah, ab- absolutely. It's way it's way risky. Uh, uh, riskier for whom? It's riskier for the developer to build rental units um, on the waterfront or in floodplains because you don't sell those units; you just rent them out. But if you build condos, you sell those units. Have you guys? You guys have seen the the FMC tower that's going to go up on a floodplain, right? Yeah, I remember that. PMC, sorry. In grad school, we had to do a development project there, and one of the sense. zoning overlays was you had to have special vents if you had underground parking to yeah. let the water in and out. Well, they don't, they don't have underground parking anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I that was going back to to civic uh, design review. Sometimes it can be frustrating for the developer. Uh, like they went before the. Uh, PMC, the Philadelphia management company who was developing the property, went before civic design review twice, uh, and the community or the the local uh, community organization, the registered community organization, constantly said, "This is horrendous. We don't want any like." And it was supposed to be like like six floors of six eight floors of uh, above ground parking, and the community was like, "No, we want underground parking," and the developer and the architect would have to continually remind them. You are sitting in a floodplain. You cannot build underground parking unless it's in a bathtub, which is you know prohibitively expensive. Well, you actually can in a bathtub. You can. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. You can right. Do it, but you have to. You have to do it in. It's, it's like called a bathtub foundation, where it's like it's like a completely sealed, and it's you know it raises the cost exponentially. But you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the aesthetics of having like three floors of parking above ground or six floors of parking above ground. And, you know, God, like million, no, like millions of dollars extra mm-hmm. versus like a little community, like, you know, resentment. Yeah. For what is essentially a mixed use residential building, not even really full on commercial. Exactly. And the, the thing not even that tall. Right. And I think I, 
I'm, I need to like look into this, but what they ended up, uh, there's a compromise situation where they don't have any under, underground parking. So they're not doing a bathtub foundation. Um, but they are, uh, putting a giant giant on the first floor. Yeah. So that's what you do. You, you know, you got the stick and you got the carrot. Yeah, no, it'd definitely be one of the largest grocery stores in center city, right. which is interesting. Uh, right down the street from Trader Joe's. I'd be fine. I would be so fine looking at eight stories of parking if I had a grocery store in front of me. Yeah, I think it also depends on what facade you put on that parking. Well, that's the thing. The it's parking it's layers. the facade treatment, yeah. Which uh, is like, like there's plenty of buildings in Center City that have, you know, like just tons and tons of parking. But so long as the first 40 feet are like somewhat active and somewhat, you know, uh, desirable to look at, like I don't think it matters. Like it, it doesn't matter once you go past like, four stories of parking i'll just say that parking in the rear makes such a big difference as opposed to the front if you go to a 52nd street just a few blocks away from here out of nowhere you'll see a mcdonald's on walnut and 52nd oh you're talking about like yeah yeah yeah. out of nowhere and it has there's a huge parking lot in the back it's a big mcdonald's just just right down the street in our residential areas seemingly but because the parking's in the rear we're so we can I tell? Can I tell the listeners where we live? Um, so you can give the general vicinity. We are on. We are on. <laughs> yeah, we are within a one to two block radius. So we're on Sansom Street. Yeah. Are you talking about the McDonald's? There's a McDonald's on Sansom, and Fifty Second. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a huge McDonald's, and there's a big parking lot, but it's in the back, and because of that, it still seems like just a neighborhood yeah. corner store in a way. It's it's amazing, just like visually. Um, how much of a difference that makes? Wow. Um, I want to I want to just ask you guys a question to think about. Sure. Um, this is a perfect time. Um, we're going to take our our second break shortly, but over the break, I want you to think about: Is there anything related to climate change policies and solutions that you disagree on? And we're going to discuss that after the break. Back to climate change therapy. I'm here with Lars Michelson. Hello. Ball. This is Lars. Lisa, Lisa Murphy in the background. Murray. Um, so it, it seems like to discover what Lars and Robert disagree with, we're going to have to find that out organically, just in the manner of natural conversation uh, <laughs> developing. <laughs> like a rapid fire? Yeah, we can't just put them on the spot here. So I, w- I want to ask you a, a, a question specifically related to to therapy and your your emotional state uh, uh, at present um oh my god but uh this is just okay. regular therapy now yeah. not climate change therapy but, but what, what do you find um that gives you hope as it pertains to to climate change is there anything you're you're optimistic about in terms of the policies that have been hmm. you know kind of put forth by other countries in the world or or our cities uh, the promise of the young gen z i'm you know what what makes me hopeful is if everyone you know thinks back to their time in school and how you would uh put off doing assignments till the very end but yet somehow you can you know if you knew what you were doing you still did okay that's you true. know, you like you delay, 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 you know, I got to clean my apartment. I got to, you know, do this first before I get around to doing the homework. Yeah. Fucking homework. 
and I sort of I hope that's the case because I, I you know I I think that we are as as humans very 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 smart mm-hmm. and when push comes to shove and the due date is actually staring us at in the face I think that people will um make make changes and also take drastic implementation mm-hmm. and unfortunately there's right now there's just so much of wishy-washy floaty float about when something's gonna happen mm-hmm. you know i i feel like that's how a lot of people feel without being able to articulate it kind mm-hmm. of as well as you just did um that unconsciously people feel like they've always you know they're happy with where they are in life or they're content in different ways mm-hmm. you know not lives people's lives may not be perfect but you're content with where you ended up and and a lot of that was doing things at the last minute like we all do as people yeah and what that results in i don't really know mm-hmm. if that's like geoengineering like oh it's so hot we don't have any other option right. except to geoengineer right. the right. heck and out of something the, the snow piercer scenario yeah and the argument would be though that this is the last minute right now that's the other thing so i have i have a different uh different take on that i'll say i am uh, it's almost like i'm hopeful for something to happen but in like a very like kind of like not even dystopian, but just a very kind of like, you know, it's a shot in the unknown direction. Uh, I'm hopeful that, or I'm hopeful looking at how much like people's uh, interactions with like their government have changed, like over like the span of history, like how, you know, people organize and like, you know, changing from like, you know, these like fiefdoms and like tribal settings to a republic to, you know, like democracies, like plutocracies, like oligarch or uh, theocracies. Like, there's so many different ways of like organizing. I don't think that like we are, um, like, I don't know. In, in a true, in a true like does that like true disaster scenario, um, I think that people will organize and people will, I don't know, like change the way they interact with each other. Hopefully for the better. Mm-hmm. in a way to like you know confront this like climate crisis but are you seeing signs of that happening now oh absolutely yeah absolutely i think you know people are talking about like we are in like a late stage of democracy yeah so i don't know if the solution is a more like like technocratic authoritarian like version um like mm-hmm. sort of benevolent like a like tech like like technological authoritarianism like oh we ran an algorithm and this is the best way to organize like our society and our resources mm-hmm. no more voting like no mm-hmm. more influence uh by interest but also no more representation what do you think is is more conducive to 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 climate change solutions or environmental justice and uh the the american um framework mm-hmm. the american democracy or uh, chinese uh the chinese model right. where they have xi jinping is yeah. dictator for life but he's able to president for life sorry but he's able to do you know whatever he wants uh and also this podcast in terms of we just in got censored in, term, in, in terms of you know putting muslims in jail but right. also in terms of Definitely putting windmills on hills i don't know uh so how because what you're describing with, it is with almost, the algorithm yeah, yeah. like this works is is that kind of like 
like I, China? I, no, I think I think China will be the first to use like, you know, they're already like pioneers in, you know, facial recognition. I think they will overtake the U.S. in AI implementation at like a large, you know, scale in a political space. You know, I think if they're, you know, maybe it's not the best for like climate change, obviously, because they're, you know, they have this kind of like two-faced like, oh, we're like, you know, planting trees and like, you know, planting windmills, but we also just like run all our cities on coal and like, you know, have an exploding population, like, or not an exploding population, sorry, but like. They have a quarter of the world's people. A quarter of the world's people and they all want to like, you know, drive Ferraris and like eat like red meat. Like, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I, yeah, it's 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 hope that like, uh, here's the hope. The the way I think about like my like government and my leaders doing something is not going to be the way that like you know my kids or grandkids are going to be looking at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, I feel like in some way. Trump's presidency, and, and you're going to have to give me a second to explain this, okay. has kind of restored my faith in the American government, the system, because Trump is such an outsider <laughs> and such a disaster that like the fact that such an outsider is a disaster kind of like... If anybody could do it. It sort of illuminates how necessary like how the insiders the are. Is. No, no, no. Oh, no, I It, see, it I illuminates see. like... How like important it is. It restores that, your faith in government. Yeah, in a way. That's yeah, very interesting. Yeah, thing. by like. No, I kind of get it though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, by the because the outsiders <laughs> such a disaster. It, it it's like it's the like, insiders are so important. No, but I think here's the problem though. It is like, and that's it's like we are not predisposed like eh, predisposed. Thank you, predisposed to like think that because uh, you know I think most of us hated him from the beginning. Can I say mm-hmm. all? Yes, go on. All of us hated him from the beginning. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I I think it's like... I just liked his hair. There's no, there's not going to be like a realization among like his voters in 2020. They're not going to like, oh, God, that was a disaster. Like, let's vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they've seen this as a success. Like, you know, they're more energized than, than ever to, you know, put him and his children and his, you know... Uh, grandchildren in office forever mm-hmm. um can i ask you a question These you you, you mentioned geo en- geoengineering i'm gonna have mike explain what geoengineering is and then i'm gonna have robbie give his opinion on whether it's a good thing and then i'm gonna have see if mike agrees or disagrees with, with <laughs> so mike's gonna give his expert opinion and robbie's gonna give his sci-fi interpretation i like this yeah mike what is geoengineering and do you think it is a reason for hope or a reason for fear? Uh, I I think, it, honestly, if it's done right, it's a reason for hope. I feel like there are way too many movies that uh, sort of take it to the extreme and you see some crazy... Snowpiercer. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but it, it honestly can be something that's very, very simple uh, that just counteracts sort of the general day-to-day, you know you know, environment and that impact it's having on the earth. And you see people putting reflective blankets on glaciers and stuff to try to keep them from melting. Uh, and generally it's uh, deliberate and it's used to refer to like a, a large scale intervention in earth uh, client 
through some scientific means. Is it putting chemicals in the atmosphere that remove Maybe. carbon Maybe. dioxide? Maybe. I think I, I think carbon capture. I think. Do you, I mean? Are we are we on board with carbon capture? Like I think that's such an exciting like technology. Where do you put it? You put it back in the earth. All right. Where do you put it? Well, I don't know. In space, just literally like have like. A, a space elevator that has a pipe on it and all the carbon just shoots like harmlessly into the vacuum of space. I'm only for carbon <laughs> capture if it comes attached with also reductions in carbon emissions. Right. No, I think cap and, I think carbon tax, carbon tax and cap and trade like will happen in this century. So mm-hmm. what- like there's no other like we have like those are such just tax it it's such an easy solution yeah what worries me what worries me is that uh you could perhaps use uh geoengineering to reverse the um basically treating the symptoms and not the actual disease itself and yeah. i think that's what exactly you're that's to. what like, we just saying. cover up the fact that it's getting hotter by making it cooler but we're not actually addressing the problem and i mm-hmm. think that eventually sets us up for failure i think so Correct. i agree i i yeah we have to stop the emissions that has to be the priority. But if we're so desperate to stop the emission, because basically if if we just stopped emissions tomorrow, people would go hungry and they wouldn't have food and water. So if, if we there was a case where we would need carbon sequestration to transition to a, a carbon-free um, electrical economy, um, that's, I'm on board with that. I kind of, my, my take on carbon sequestration is similar to nuclear it's like it might be it's it, to make uh, the transition feasible it has a it has a use in moderation but it it um just as a transitional technology yeah i i think that there's a, a moral hazard to it mm-hmm. and you know it's something that is actually pretty approachable from a financial standpoint depending on what you do whether it be you know cloud seeding or you know, uh, you know, sequestration on a small level, but space mirrors, space mirrors, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a country could choose to do something on their own that might have an unintended effect on either the earth or their neighbors or, you know, a certain on themselves and not really know what, um, you know, it's something you can't possibly know the long term effect of, really. Uh, so so the, you're, yeah. you're describing the Snowpiercer scenario. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm so I think it needs to. I think it's something that can be done. But how do you balance that with actually treating the problem itself and not just the symptom? And how do you mm-hmm. do it with in the safest manner possible, where any experimentation in that realm is actually just doing it? Mm-hmm. You know. But ideally, there's no de- small scale study. Ideally, we develop a technology that produces energy in a clean way that's replicable and scalable. You know, um, and that can occur during day and night, during high wind concentrations, during low wind concentrations. So, what are your thoughts on the, uh, um, you know, our, our, what our first uh, the the push pendulum power swing from perpetual technologies? <laughs> Would a giant pendulum that you just push to continue to swing, you know, why couldn't that be as effective as a windmill? Think about it. So, okay, I'll, I'll do a little more expl- explaining. So, you know those wrenches that to to turn a bolt, 
you kind of like turn in one direction and it turns the bolt and then when you bring it back the other direction it doesn't turn the bolt right what is that a, what do you call this a ratchet a ratchet wrench a ratchet wrench right mm-hmm. so what you have is you have two ratchet wrench rat wrenches on either side of the bolt the bolt is the thing that turns which turns the turbine and those two kind of ratchet wrenches hold a giant weight which is the pendulum so these ratchet wrenches swing and the the bolt just keeps turning in the same direction i think i think um and you, and to to it's compensate either, for the loss friction, of heat, you just have someone pushing. It's either friction or like potential energy. That's your problem. Well, you definitely lose energy, but you <laughs> but you um, balance so you it out. You spend energy to make energy. Yeah, you, yeah, and you, you so spend you make the, zero energy. Yeah, the energy. No, no, but the energy you put in is is labor, and the energy you get out is electricity. It's just a cleaner version than mining for coal and burning it. I don't think there are any holes in this idea. So this is the Matrix scenario. No, no, no. The coal—it's it's just as humans produce a electric current. Look, would would you and rather you can harvest that electric current and put it into batteries that run the machines? No, but it's just, you're pushing. You could take shifts. You know, five minutes, push for five minutes, then you know, take a five-minute cigarette break. Actually, look up. There's a there's like a video or something, or I don't know. Um, like how much? It's not the matrix. You scenario. need to like like how much do you need to pedal to power like a blender? Like how much you are on a bike that's hooked up to like a little generator? Like how much you need to actually pedal to power that generator? Mm-hmm. But this is this is it's, not just pedaling a bike. It's a giant pendulum. <laughs> so a lot of the energy is it's not just mom- it's gravity. Also, you're using gravity. If it's so um, giant, how do you push it? I mean, I think you just you without saying anything about its feasibility. Yeah. <laughs> I think that you'll have to expend a lot of energy to get it going. Right, and that's not a concentrated energy form. I think and if you make the weight of it enough, it will be one person won't be able to add enough power to keep it where it is. You know, so I, I think that you reach issues you with sure? scale where you. One person isn't providing <laughs> Have enough you done the math? energy to keep it moving, whereas if it's too little, then it it doesn't have enough, you know, torque to you know make a lot of power. I see. That's a good point. Uh, but I also think because it turns the bolt or the aka the turbine mm-hmm. in either direction, it it turns it the same direction in and for each direction the pendulum swing because there are two ratchet wrenches. Um, no, the the way the ratchet wrench works is like you expend energy to turn it like once, yeah. and then you can bring it back. No, but they're on they're on both sides, so that um, whichever way the pendulum rocks, it turns the wrench the wrench the same way, it turns the bolt the same way. Well, it'll lose energy in the transfer. Um, I'm not an engineer, so I'm gonna bow out of this. No, no. The point is that you create you, <laughs> you create a pendulum that swings back and forth, that turns a turbine one way constantly, so. It doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, it, it helps if you bring the pendulum higher up, uh, the, but you don't necessarily Henry, need to bring no, it that high. Hank, sorry. The pendulum stops when you like are turning the turbine. Very briefly. <laughs> that will pose a problem for electronics. <laughs> I see. Okay. I'm so all on board for nuclear fusion. You're, you're skeptical. Let me know when that happens. Fusion? Yeah. Well, what's the what's the what's the one that's like very pop thorium, like thorium reactors? 
Yeah, let's save that for next week. What do you, Thor, yeah. next week? What do, what do you think is is the most likely uh, the, the alternative energy source besides solar and wind to kind of like become mainstream and mm-hmm. proliferate? What's at the forefront? I mean, I think geothermal is you know it's like readily accessible and it really doesn't do anything but just like access the Earth's natural like heat, which is mm. interesting. Uh, it's very expensive, and um, I think it's only. I, it's like hard to generate like it's a very it's easy for heating like you just use like like coils that like change the air temperature but it's hard to turn that into electricity mm-hmm. gotcha flowers i'm like i said all on board nuclear fusion we just need to figure it out what's what's the difference well, yeah, between that's nuclear like, fusion no, that's and like, nuclear that's such a cop out it's a cop out it is a cop it's like it's like i think unlimited energy would be the best energy source <laughs> It's like shut up! It's cold, you idiot. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm gonna gonna read some climate change facts here. I'm just gonna react to them. Um, so this is a special edition. It's it's penguins. Okay. Um, so did you know that nearly three percent of the ice in the Antarctic glaciers is penguin urine? That's gross. Did you know that? That's your reaction. No, I did not know that. <laughs> Does it change the way you see the world? Only in Antarctica. Okay. Here's another one. Did you know that the Gentoo penguins propose to their life mates with a pebble? It's not that different from people. That's adorable. We just put a band on our pebble. It's the only difference. They just, they take a, a rock. Maybe it's a diamond. Who knows? Whatever they find. They put it in their little beaks and they, they put it into their partner's geek beak. Does their rock come from a Kimberlite tube? It comes from... Um, Okay, it's jewelers mm. down on 7th Street. Uh, Lars, you're standing up now. Is there, uh, can I help you? I'm getting anxious. You're getting anxious for what specifically? You have to be somewhere? Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, no, nothing I want to plug. Robbie's eating potato chips. I know, it's, uh, it's, it's great for, and I want for the sound. But I don't want to eat them in the <laughs> microphone. Oh, I see. 